Hello, and welcome to the Chronicle of the Horse podcast. I'm Molly Bailey, senior reporter for the Chronicle of the Horse. We'd like to thank our sponsor of today's podcast, Riders Give Back. This episode of the Chronicles podcast is brought to you by the equestrian streetwear and activist brand, Riders Give Back. In 2020, Riders Give Back will help our community make a difference by connecting riders with opportunities to serve as well as giving 100% of their profit towards battling racial injustice, hunger, child trafficking, and homelessness amongst LGBT teenagers and single parent families. Visit ridersgiveback.com and get 10% off your purchase by using code COTH. Wear RGB and put your money where your cause is. Today I'm going to hand it over to staff writer Tori Repol, who will be speaking with horsewoman and activist Brianna Noble. When citizens of Oakland, California witnessed Brianna Noble and her seven year old Appaloosa gelding, Dapper Dan, walking through the Black Lives Matter protest for George Floyd on May 29th, They stopped in their tracks to take pictures and raise fists in solidarity. This wasn't Noble's first protest, but it was the first time the lifelong equestrian attended one on horseback. When photos from the event went viral on the internet, the 25-year-old got confirmation of the impact she was hoping to achieve, one that sparked the opportunity for dialogue and change. Noble became a public sensation overnight and is using her newfound platform to fight for equality in equestrian sports and beyond. Thank you so much, Brianna, for joining us today. Yes, thank you so much for having me here. It's, it's such an honor and a pleasure to be here. It's been 17 days since you've protested with DAPA, a horse you've owned for two years. Talk to me about how life has changed for you since. Um, you know, it's been pretty, pretty overwhelming, honestly, um, just with the, the newfound attention and doing all of the interviews and everything. And it's also been um, very, very exciting for me as well, because um, one of my biggest goals in the um, equestrian community has been to make a difference and make horses more accessible for um, people of color and inner city youth. And so this is something that I've been, I've had in my brain for years. And now this is giving me the opportunity to really create a lasting program here in my community. And that's beyond exciting. So there's lots of things that have changed and lots of work to be done. For a lot of us, the conversation around race begins in childhood. So before we get into the thick of the interview, let's revisit your childhood um, where you grew up in Oakland, a city that, as you've said, is a melting pot of people. Do you remember the moment or the encounter that first made you aware of your black skin? Um, yeah, uh, I definitely think the barn that I grew up in, you know, I was aware that I was a, a little bit different, but the moment where I, I knew it hit home is uh, I had gone to do a little, a little sort of camp experience and it was my first one. And there were kids that kind of came in from, from all over the place. And I will never forget sitting there and there were just people staring at me and I was so self-conscious, you know, I'm sitting here in my back is straight and, you know, I'm just kind of trying to, to pay attention to what the instructor was saying. And, um, I, 
I was just so embarrassed because I was like, I must smell bad or there must be something on my face or, you know, like there's so many people staring at me. I don't get it. And um, I remember a little, another girl kind of got the confidence to come over and talk to me. And she goes, "Um, is it, are you, is your skin actually black all over? Um, and so I kind of realized in that moment, I was like, oh, wow, I don't have anything on my face other than the brown. Um, but everybody's staring at me simply because they've, they haven't really been around a black person before, seen a black person in this situation. And, um, you know, that was the moment for me where it really hit home that I am so much different than everybody else. And it does bring me that attention. Talk to me about what it's like being a minority in equestrian sports. Um, the best way for me to describe it is being a, a white flower amongst a field of red roses. Um, so that can mean a lot of different things. Um, most of the time, or a lot of times it can just mean that, you know, everybody stares at me and it might not always be a racist thing, but like I said, if you see one white flower amongst an entire field of red roses, your attention tends to kind of go um, towards that one white flower. And, um, like I said, that's not always exactly a negative thing, but a lot of times it is, you know, um, I've walked through the doors of a lot of different barns and sometimes you get people that, um, are generally just curious about you. And other times you get people that will not meet your eye. They won't speak to you. Um, and then you get some of the, the blatant, blatant racism. I've walked into to barns and gotten the question of what kind of black are you? Um, well, I, 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 uh, I don't know the, the, the brown kind. Um, you know, you don't even, you don't even know how to respond sometimes, but you definitely get a, a broad range of responses. Right. And in our first interview, when we spoke, you made an interesting point that you know, minority doesn't necessarily always extend to race, but it can extend to your socioeconomic background. Um, and can you talk to me or explain to the people who are listening just what you've encountered from, you know, not only being a Black person in the industry, but being someone who can't afford to look the part? Yeah, you know, it can be a really hard thing, you know, um, when you come from a you don't have an affluent background. You know, this is kind of something where if you don't have the money backing, it's pretty, pretty impossible to do. Um, so especially just in even going to get jobs or to get a working position, to work, working student position, it can be really, really hard. I mean, it's, uh, I kind of look at it like a businessman, you know, you can have all of the experience in the world, you can have the degree, Um, But if you don't have the money to have a suit to go to a job interview, you begin to ask yourself, well, first of all, are you even comfortable going in a t-shirt and jeans to a job interview for a big company? And if you do choose to go to that job interview in that t-shirt and jeans because you can't afford a suit, are people going to take you seriously? Are they going to say, oh, maybe she's, you know, this person isn't qualified for this job because they don't look the part. And that is a big part of what you go through in the, in the horse world, you know, is breeches are really expensive. Um, I mean, helmets are expensive. Everything is, is really, really expensive, you know, and 
Um, when you come in as somebody that doesn't really have much and you're trying to get a, a position, whether that be, you know, a trainer position, assistant trainer, working student, um, people don't really take you seriously if you don't look like them. And when you don't have the funds to do that, you a lot of times you don't feel comfortable going to the jobs or you can't get them. So it, it can definitely be hard. One thing you pointed out to me was that, you know, compared to a sport like basketball or football, you can't just pick up a ball in your backyard and go out and practice for equestrian sport. You need access to the horse and you need the consistency to be able to, you know, grow and develop and, you know, craft your role as a rider. Um, so one thing you pointed out was, you know, our sport really lacks the opportunity for, you know, programs that will help kids, underprivileged kids who don't have, you know, access to buying boots or whatever attack they may need. What are you hoping to accomplish with Humble, um, your organization? Well, I am, I'm definitely hoping to bridge that cap, that gap. I want to give kids and young people coming up the opportunity to have those needs met so that they can work for what they want. So I want to be able to provide these kids um, with, with horseback riding lessons to create, give them a good basis. You know, I want to be able to foster um, relationships between them and some professionals in the industry that can give them a foot up, give them a chance to have their first working student position and, and really learn from, from a professional. Um, and also, you know, those kids that can't, can't afford, um, you know, that, that pair of boots, you know, or they can't afford the, the couple of polos that they need. I want to be sure that I can help support them through that. Because, you know, at the end of the day, um, I just really want to level the playing field for these kids so that they, they have the opportunity to be able to work. They have the opportunity to be that businessman that, you know, has all of this, you know, skill for, but needs that business suit. I want to provide that business suit for these kids and just give them a chance, give them a chance to get a foothold to be able to pull themselves up. And there are those in our industry who believe that hard work can catapult anyone to the top, no matter their race or lack of financial backing. How did that play out in your life experience? And would you agree with that sentiment? Well, I don't know if I can agree with it because it hasn't worked for me. Um, so I'm someone where I've been hungry for my horse and I'm only 25, you know, but I, I dropped out of school when I was 16 and went to college by myself. And I've been living on my own in that time and, and working and trying to scrape and take any opportunity that I can. And all of these issues are things that still I'm faced with to, to this day, you know, um, even just these last couple months as we've gone through this COVID time and I can't, I couldn't teach my beginner lessons, you know, so I go out to big equestrian centers and, you know, um, sit on a bunch of horses for different trainers. And, um, I mean, I always like have the trouble, like I don't have 10 pairs of breeches, you know, um, I got to try to keep what I have, you know, the two pairs I have really, really nice and always wash them and take care of them and not get them super dirty or anything like that. Um, I've, I've worked hard for, I mean, as long as I can remember. And I haven't gotten my foothold yet, you know? Um, you know, there's been times where just trying to feed my horse before I had a car, I would 
you know, be rolling up my bale of hay onto the, the bus and, you know, using the wheelchair lift to get it lifted up and drop it off down the street in front of the barn for my horse. And like I said, I, I still haven't exactly had my chance. So if I've been hungry, if I've put my bales of hay on the bus to feed my horse, if I've gone after all of these opportunities and I've had chances where, yeah, I might get the job, but I, I can't keep up with clothes or I can't even figure out how to get to the job because it costs so much money on gas that I don't have. Um, if I can do all of that and I haven't figured it out yet, I mean, I hope other kids behind me don't have to do, don't have to be hungry and don't have to do all of that stuff to try to make it, you know, um, that, that seems a little bit hard with no, not much return. Right. And I think your life story really count, really counters um, the narrative that, you know, just hard work will get you anywhere because you definitely went above and beyond to not only purchase your first horse, but to gain and maintain access to the industry. Um, can you share the story of your first horse, Midnight Affair, and the complicated journey you two took together? Yeah. Um, so I didn't really have support of my my parents once I became a teenager, and I ended up at a local self-care boarding facility that is not exactly the place that you'd want to be. Um, I've definitely seen uh, things that I don't want to see happen to horses and in the horse world at, at a facility like this. Um, but I actually saw this big, gorgeous, off-the-track thoroughbred, and she looked like something off of Animal Precinct that show that we'd watch back in the day. I had never in my life seen a horse <laughs> in, in as awful condition as this, this mare was in. And, um, uh, for the first time in my life, I got to see what horse tripping is like, you know, I'd be sitting a lot of the times I, I wouldn't go home and I'd sleep in the hayloft of the, the barn that was there. Uh, and I, I'd, I'd be watching what these guys were doing with the horse, you know, and they'd set her loose in the big arena and, and chase her around and, and rope her front feet and watch her tumble head over heels. Um, and I just, I'd sit there and cry and there's, there's nothing really I could do about it. So, um, they'd throw the mare back in a little pen and they wouldn't feed her. And all she had is the sticks and, and twigs and stuff that would fall into the, the muddy pen she was in to eat. And so I would, you know, scrape together whatever money I had, you know, if I was on the bus, I'd any change that I could find, you know, um, any little thing I could do around the barn, you know, if somebody needed their horse hand walked or something like that, any money I could make, I would save it up and I would buy food for her and I'd just throw her whatever hay or whatever grain I could, I could figure out. And, uh, from there, you know, I wanted to buy the horse from the guy cause I figured that was the only way I could. I could help her. And I kind of listed a, a little post on my local equestrian center, like, Hey, can anybody help me out with donations? And I was able to make about, you know, 700, $800 or so in donations. And, um, the guy, he called her ugly at the time, you know, and he said, Oh, I want my money. You know, he didn't want to take what I had that little $800. And, um, lucky for her and for me that he ended up I'm getting into some trouble with the police and he was deported and um, the wife that was left, you know, um, with her kids, she just came to me and gave me the horse. Um, so I was able to take that, that little bit of money I had left over to, uh, to kind of get her fixed up, you know, because she had huge wounds all over the back of her hocks and uh, proud flesh all over the place. And, um, you know, that helped me pay a few months of board and, 
and, you know, buy a couple bales of hay and everything like that to, to take care of her. And, um, it was definitely not an, an easy time for me to, you know, like I said, I didn't, I didn't have a good relationship with my parents. So I, a lot of times I, I sleep in the barn and, you know, when I got hay, since it was health self-care, um, I would have to do so by, by going to the local feed store and, um, all the bus drivers knew me. So they would wait with their wheelchair lift down, like I said, and I'd push my little bale of hay up onto the bus. And a lot of times, you know, once that ran out, I didn't have money to feed my horse. So I'd, I'd skip school and I'd spend all day, you know, doing my homework and reading um, basically down the street from the ranch um, at the local fire department. And I'd have her grazing there all day. And it was to the point during the winter time, sometimes I'd, you know, go and I'd have to supplement my hay and, and cut grass and bring it run down the street in a wheelbarrow and you know we we made it by we made it by like that and uh she you know she started to get better and better and I never thought I'd be able to ride her I, she was lame in like three legs but um she started to get fatter and one day she just pricked her ears up at a six foot fence on the arena and she jumped out <laughs> and she went galloping back to her stall where I had her her grain and stuff waiting for her and I just went wow from there and and from there I mean she's she's turned into my heart horse. And when you relocated from Oakland to pursue veterinary technology you met Marlene Fultz who is a mentor of yours and she was the first to kind of make you aware that your dreams of going to the Olympics weren't feasible this dream that you had since you were five six years old but even though it wasn't a feasible dream there was still a place for you in the industry what advice would you give to the equestrians who are struggling with reimagining their own goals? You know, I would just say we have to put the horses first. We all have our own agendas and, and issues in this world and our own dreams and goals. But um, I think where I found my happiness is just in, in really thinking about my love and passion for, for horses and focusing on horsemanship because I truly believe that horsemanship is a, a language that transcends all disciplines. Um, so, you know, if you focus on that and you remember why it is we, we really do what we do, it's, it's because of the love of the horse, you know? I don't really care if I ever make my dreams happen or if I ever get to go out and, and you know, compete and jump big like I, I love to do. At the end of the day, I'm happy because my horses are happy and because I, I enjoy riding. And so, um, I think if we, we focus on our horsemanship and, and being the best that we can be just for our horses, then as opportunity comes, hopefully, hopefully it will come and we'll be able to, to take those, those deals when they do. And talk about the impact Marlene has had on you from, you know, giving you greater perspective, helping you reshift your focus um, to a lasting career that you now have developing young horses and selling them. Marlene, I just, <laughs> I, I can't say enough about that woman. And what I really, really respect her for is she is not someone that has ever given me a handout per se. Um, she didn't just come to me and be like, oh, here's money because you're awesome. Do what you want. She came to me and she'd be like, here's an opportunity. I can help you out financially, but you're going to work for it. So she'd say, I'll never forget her and her husband coming out with a thousand dollars and saying, here's a loan, go out and pick up a horse as a project and you're going to do all the work. I'm going to support you by, by giving you this money to do it. And we're going to split the price. 
once you sell the animal. So I was then put into this position where she gave me all the opportunity to work as hard as I wanted for what I wanted. And um, that, that is the amazing part. She just gave me the opportunity to make something out of myself. And, you know, she continues to do that through this day. I mean, she's just, <laughs> I love her so much. You know, I, I can't stress enough how instrumental in my life that that woman is and was in just helping me figure out how to make a living, um, helping me figure out how to do right by the horses. And um, I would not be where I am today without her. And since, you know, the protesting and the dialogue um, has come up in our industry, there are lots of people asking of ways they can, you know, help bring in more inclusivity to the sport, more diversity into the sport, um, and to extend opportunity to, you know, underprivileged kids, minority kids, whatever the case might be, who just want a leg up in the industry. How would you suggest that people can, you know, take it upon themselves to give a helping hand? You know, I would just like to see everybody be a little bit more like Marlene. And um, I mean that on that, I mean that on the smallest scale to the, to the grandest scale, you know? Um, so just giving somebody the opportunity to work would be amazing. So if you see that, that kid scraping by in the barn that has holes in their breeches and stuff like that, maybe say, hey, um, can you come over here? I have, I, my trailer needs to be cleaned out for the show and I really don't have time. You know, can I pay you to come do that? Or, you know, give that kid, if you've got a, a good, nice horse, you know, an opportunity to sit on something nice for the first time. Hey, can you just come walk my horse five laps in each direction to cool off? Um, you know, you've got a, a show helmet or something like that. And you're, you're looking to upgrade for the new season, you know, replace that kid's shiny schooling Troxel helmet, you know, with your show helmet. Like those are things that, uh, I mean, you can really help with just give somebody the, the opportunity to work, you know, and that kid, if they're going to show work ethic and really want to do it, keep trying to help in any way that you can, you know, don't just ignore them because that's been a really a hard thing um, growing up in barns is you completely either have all the attention on you or everyone just kind of ignores you all the time. You know, just give somebody some opportunity, try to help out where you can. Um, and I think that will pull up a lot of people. And one point you made when we um, did our original interview is that you so from going, you know, from show jumping to Western riding, you've dabbled in so many different disciplines and sectors of our industry that there are people who are kind of losing touch with the horse and why they got into the industry and that respect for the horse, regardless of whether or not, you know, they can jump a Grand Prix. How did your perspective shift, you know, once you change from, I want to go to the Olympics to, I simply want to bring out the best in this horse? Yeah, I think it it changed a lot. I don't think that I'd be the rider that I am today if I hadn't um, started working with the kinds of horses that I do. You know, there's something to be said about thinking that you're a good rider and that you're good with horses and then stepping in a, a pen with a feral horse that's never had somebody touch it before and trying to get something out of it, you know. Um, and one thing that I've kind of realized is that horsemanship is almost dying. You know, we're all, um, from what I see in the performance horse industry, we're all so focused on getting things out of horses and, and getting to a specific goal, whether that be in competition or breeding or whatever, um, that we kind of lose sight of 
what actually makes the horse happy and how horses are supposed to be. And um, I think when our goal becomes less about a competition sort of goal or a dream, and we kind of focus a little bit more on having a, a good and easy dialogue with our horse, um, you know, I think that that really is the ease of dialogue with our horse is is really what's important. And once I started to focus on that, I figured out that, wow, you know, um, if I can really converse with the horse, I can get a horse to want to do anything, anything that I want and make it really easy and fun for both of us. And um, that I think is the the biggest thing that I've learned and kind of going back and forth between between the disciplines is that, you know, that it's going back to what I said is horsemanship is a language that transcends all disciplines. It really doesn't matter what kind of saddle you have on your back, but the horsemanship does matter. And with your organization humble, what are a few steps you're taking to bring this vision to life? Well, this is a vision that I've been been working on really for the past five years to have a really solid program. Um, I'm, I've definitely done lots of, lots of work at it, you know, so I've put, I've put on different little um, trips and stuff for the kids, you know, so one of them being, I brought out a, a group of like eight inner city youth to the, to the ranch. And, um, you know, we had a whole kind of mini, mini summer camp experience and, um, you know, got these kids out of the city setting and kind of more into the country and they got to experience horses for the first time and ride. And we had a fun little cowboy camp out. And, um, you know, uh, in that time I've, I've done a lot of work with the kids. I've worked with the city of Oakland and, and, you know, I ran their, their horsemanship day camp there, but now, um, working with humble, I'm really looking at getting a consistent, long lasting program going for my community where these kids have that opportunity to come take consistent riding lessons and to really put a basis on themselves so that, like I said, later um, we can connect them with some professionals that may be able to provide them with a, a foothold to, to gain working student positions to further themselves as equestrians. Well, thank you so much, Brianna, again, for taking the time to speak with us and to share your perspectives on what we can all do to, you know, make this sport that we all love so much greater. And thank you so much for having me. It has been a, a pleasure. That's our show. Thanks for listening to the Chronicle of the Horse podcast. We really appreciate Brianna for coming on the show. Thanks also to today's sponsor, Riders Give Back. Riders Give Back is offering listeners 10% off their purchase at ridersgiveback.com using code C-O-T-H. RGB's mission is to bring street culture to the equestrian world in a way that drives awareness to the causes their riders support while giving away 100% of the profit. Choose the stand-up shirt to support Black Lives Matter or the Midtown shirt to contribute to Lost and Found's youth's goal of ending homelessness among LGBT teenagers. Wear RGB and put your money where your cause is. You can find a link to our sponsor in the show notes of this episode. We look forward to our next episode in July and you can expect new episodes in your feed every month. You can listen at www.cough.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please do follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Cron of Horse. Thanks for listening.